Welcome to the Good Bad Mad podcast, a show that's here to share the ins and outs of creative careers, connecting the aspirational with the experienced, with your host, me, Meg Ellis. My guest for this episode is the multi-talented Josh Baker. He's a two-time Emmy-nominated filmmaker who directs and produces for the likes of Louis Theroux and Stacey Dooley. His most recent work is the I Am Not A Monster podcast for BBC Sounds, 100% worth a listen to. Josh works in a really versatile way, often acting as director, producer and cinematographer. His role combines journalism with cinema. He works with highly sensitive sources and contacts that have to pull through for years at a time. As a producer, he has to plan for everything, but also be able to make quick creative decisions. But when you're filming in places like Syria, that's got to be tricky. I can't wait to find out more. It's such an exciting job, and Josh is one of the very few people who get to do it. I'm really excited to talk to him. Enjoy. Well, I'm only on episode eight, so no spoilers, please. Are you? Oh, well, that's cool. Have you listened to eight or eight, or have you just got to eight? I'm at, I'm at the bit where you've just been to the prison. The torturous prison. Yeah. Oh, the really like uplifting moment. That really, <laughs> really joyous. <laughs> yeah. I think eight, nine, and ten are our favorite episodes. Yeah. And four with the little um, Yazidi boy from Iraq, Aham, who makes everyone cry. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, it's, 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 it's quite heavy. <laughs> yeah, 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 I suppose so. Hopefully it's like not too like, I mean, it is, that, this whole story is insanely heavy, but it is, um, I had a joke at one point, it was like, can you name an evil, a, a type of evil we don't cover in this story and nobody mm. can really come up with one that we don't. Somebody said gout, but I don't think that's a form of evil. I think that's just a byproduct of drinking too much or eating too much cheese. I don't think that counts as evil. Also, like, what kind of the most middle class answer ever? Gout. What are you talking about, gout? No gout in this story, Josh. Oh, I don't know. That's quite tricky, actually. Um... No, we can come up with something. Which okay. was, yes, yeah, so you are right. It's, it's quite dark. I you agree. But you managed to do it in quite a kind of chirpy way though which is quite gallows humor exactly uh, i think you need that i think you need that but i always listen to it when i'm walking the dogs so, so you're just you're in like a, a tranquil relaxing exactly, environment like, just like i'm happy to be here <laughs> i like the dog mug you've got oh. as well i'm slightly obsessed with dogs good I like dogs <laughs> you're like lucky dogs they're not currently climbing all over me how many do you have three. Oh, that's nice what types they're all they're all Labradors. We've got the old boy Riley, he's black lab, and then Jess and Dot are mum and daughter red fox labs. Oh, cool. Lots of dogs. They are my my little lifesavers. So I, um... animals are the best. We have a kitten because you can't really have a dog in London. Sorry, I'm not, I'm all over the place. Hi. Hi. <laughs> there we go. Um, professional, right? Okay. I guess so I guess professional. What we are all about, really, at The Good, Bad, Mad is figuring out what is actually involved when it comes to creative careers and Mm. freelance creative careers, because it's quite hard sometimes to understand what 
actually is involved with it at all. Like people tend to know what an actor does or what a director does, but mm -hmm. um, when it comes to actual filmmaking and things, people they're not quite sure. So for all those who are interested in kind of entering in the industry mm. or kind of changing careers or just literally understanding more about what it is, that's the point of this really. Mm. So, I mean, I guess you're a bit of a jack of all trades, really. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I hope so. I like to, I, I try to be a multimedia storyteller, if you like. Okay. Um, which just means I'm normally really stressed. <laughs> I can't do this. I'm trying to make a film and write a thing and do a thing and you just sort of, but to be honest, I mean, like, if you think about how the industry's gone and also being a freelancer, the mm. more things you, you can turn your hand to, the more revenue streams you have, so the more sustainable it is. And media is mixed media now. So you, you talk about social media, social media is writing, but it's also mm. video, it's also picture, I think as well, increasingly. So one of the things about, um, I won't go on too much of a tangent, but one of the things that about the, the podcast that's been a first, world first for the BBC, is it is a truly multimedia commission. So it starts as a film. Mm. And then I was like, guys, I want to make this podcast. I want to make this a podcast. I want to make this podcast for a year. Mm. And then they um, find a way to make that happen. So, and now it's like going to be as, as well, like a 7,000 word long read with interactive things as well that I'm just trying mm -hmm. to finish at the moment. So it's one of those things where it's branched out mm. into being multiple formats, multiple mediums, and, and that way you access a much wider audience. But also for someone like the BBC or, or anybody really, it makes it a much more viable product for them because it's yeah. like we're getting a lot for our, our money, basically, yeah. which is and good. Were you just confident that you could tell that story in like multiple different ways? Yeah, I think so, because it's like particularly with this one, there's a lot of available media there's a lot of ways that you can tell it differently so if you think about a film you know or specifically this film return from isis it's 58 minutes 30 seconds so that is the level of time you have to tell that story mm -hmm. and the thing about filmmaking which is my first love i love it but it's everything kind of across a, an arc of a story or a three-act structure or whatever it's kind of more functional like you know a scene exists to tell one part of the story or introduce you to a character but you're continuing on your journey mm. whereas with a podcast i can give over half an episode to something that doesn't necessarily further the story but is yeah. really interesting so an example of this would be um in episode two of the podcast we spend ages with laurie talking about her conversations with the people smuggler and how the fbi got involved with that and how it was their only hope to get the family back yeah. ultimately it failed but it's really interesting stuff. In the film, that's not in there at all because yeah. it has no, it's interesting, but it doesn't take us anywhere. Yeah. So in the podcast, you get a chance to go into sort of like these cul-de-sacs for what of a better phrase. And I'll go over here and explore this a bit and then I'll come back to the progressing narrative. Yeah. Um, I guess and it's I think, the same difference between a novel and a film really, isn't it? So Totally. And even like with the long read to some degree, it's interesting because you can, do a bit more than the film to some degree, but you mm -hmm. still can't have the freedom that you have for the podcast. Mm -hmm. So with a story where you have so much to tell, mm -hmm. it sort of lends itself naturally to multimedia if you're willing to, to put the work in to mm -hmm. do it. So you've spent four years yeah. using this story. Pretty much, yeah. 
on and off. Um, it's obviously not what I've been done continuously. I've done lots of other things, so yeah. it's, which has made it more stressful because it's like, well, I've got to go over here and do this thing. I've got to go do this thing. I've got to do this thing. Yeah. When you started, I guess, researching it and working on it. Yeah. You don't know the ending. No, I mean, you can kind of, you're right. And we did try to like, as a film, we tried yeah. to finish it multiple times. And every time we were about to broadcast, it was like, oh, we can't broadcast anymore because something would happen. So it had like six different TX dates, as we call mm. it, transmission dates. And we, probably not that many, like four or five maybe. Mm. But it, it, it just kept getting pushed. But we kind of knew the dream ending would yeah. be when Matthew is back home in America mm. after about year one, when we knew he was out of ISIS territory and he was alive, that there was a probability that he would come home. And we were like, well, that's that's where our end is. The problem with that is, is that when he comes back to America, he goes rightly into the care of child services and he needs a lot of therapy. So you don't know whether you're actually, A, will get the opportunity to interview him or B, whether that would be the right thing to do or not. So, mm. you know, from the moment he, he came home, it still think it took about two years for us to actually sit down and have an interview with him. Yeah. I guess, like, how, how do you remain confident in in that project with those kind of unknowns you know like the, at any point I guess someone could say now nah, I'm done talking yeah I mean it's really hard it's incredibly hard mm -hmm. and my job largely involves me making my life match with whatever's going on with other people's like fitting in with their time mm -hmm you know, whatever they're doing, yeah. which is hard in itself because it means you kind of lose your life because you're fitting in around them. Mm. But it's crucial that you do that. And then there's also the aspect of like, can we afford to keep it going? What is Josh going to do for these periods where we can't do anything? So it's, yeah, it's, it's immensely stressful. But you just have to keep it going, really. It's like being mm. smacked in the face with a shovel continuously for four years. And then every now and again, there's something that's really great and nice and lovely. And you just got to keep, going up the hill basically while somebody's beating you whilst remembering it's all self-inflicted yeah exactly nobody's forcing me to do it I mean I think I think what's difficult about this story and it's incredibly idealistic is that obviously I was blown up and while in recovery I get shown a video of a young kid who's being forced to assemble a suicide bomb so there were these parallels of the experience I just had mm. and the experience of what I was seeing a kid and then like right then and there, I was like, well, I'm just going to find the kid, which is insane. I mean, if we step back from that, what do you mean you're going to find the kid? Of yeah. course, you're not going to find the kid. He's in Syria with ISIS. How are you going to find the kid? Well, I was like, I'm just going to find him. I'm going to try and help him. And, and uh, there was no barrier for you there. There was no apprehension of... No, it was just, I'm just going to find him. I just made a decision. Yeah. And I think that, the reason I mentioned that is I think that gave me... A sort of insane level of drive it was like mm -hmm. no matter how exhausting and tiring it got there is something here that's really important so we'll just keep going but there were definitely times where I was like Jesus Christ this is mm -hmm. this is seriously draining but it, it's a, a choice thing and nobody forced me to do it that's so true so when and where did you decide that this is what you wanted to do with your career so I worked in fictional film while I was at uni mm -hmm. Uh, like worked in the art department on like so building sets or doing like all that sort of fun stuff but I was always interested in journalism and documentary particularly mm -hmm. and I got 
I graduated in 2012 and the Olympics were in town and I'd managed to get onto sort of like a broadcast training scheme. Okay. So I went to work for the Olympics as I was on their training scheme. And then after that, I really wanted to work in journalism. And I went to the Cheltenham Literature Festival because the Times newspaper were doing like a, a morning meeting. So I don't know if you know about papers, maybe you do, but there's basically how a paper is kind of run is that in the morning there is a meeting with all the editors or key people from all the different departments and they discuss the potential stories for the day and they sort of pitch them mm-hmm. to whoever the editor of the day is you know like so the foreign will go in with like their five top stories business what have you and everyone talks about them and works out what they should pursue and then they go off and do those and then there's another meeting early in the afternoon where everyone talks about how those stories have come together whether they need to be dropped whether they don't stand up whether they're actually working out really really well and the times had decided they were going to do their morning meeting live at Cheltenham Literature Festival so the, the sort of key editorial staff were there including a man called James Harding who was then editor of the times and I just went and I cornered him after he got off stage and I was like I really want to be a foreign correspondent and he had nowhere to go so he was really nice and he engaged with me and he basically gave me inter- email and introduced me to the foreign editor of the times who's a man called rick beeston he was absolutely mad and i went to meet rick for 45 minutes and he kind of grilled me mm-hmm. and rick was this brilliant war correspondent who had um historically when saddam hussein had gassed the kurds in iraq he'd been one of the first people to go there and break that story like he'd lived it and done it and he was known for taking risks on young people and really pushing young people to be involved so very lucky to meet him Mm. and rick listened to me and he was like all right well come in tomorrow i was like what do you mean and he was like come in and do a week on the desk the foreign desk and we'll go from there so i did a week for free Mm -hmm. and they um liked me so a few months later they brought me back so I started working on the foreign desk of the times as a researcher Mm -hmm. and sort of just worked my way up and became like one of their foreign night editors so sort of did that and then from that I went to work in the NGO sector a bit and then I ended up going to work for the Victoria Derbyshire show in the BBC Mm -hmm. and then I started working more on films and things like that and working for US networks and then I became what's called like a shooting producer director so it's where you film produce so you do all like the practical side of organizing things and then you direct which is the narrative um, side of things and I started to develop within that a specialty of conflict which means that my role is slightly different to a normal PD as we call it a normal producer director because when you work in conflict or hostile environments you also have to take on um, the risk management and the safety planning so it's like I'm going to the most IED, the most mine street in the world. How am I going to manage that risk? How am I going to manage the team? Or I'm going to Syria and, you know, we're going to be passing through areas where ISIS were, or I'm embedding with Iraqi special forces. You know, how do we do this safely? So it becomes quite a specialty. So you take on an added layer of sort of management of, of how to run teams or how to work in those environments safely, or as safe as you can be. I went from that sort of back into a hybrid which is what I've just done which is the podcast series where I'm sort of taking the stuff I learned from writing Mm -hmm. for the times and the narrative storytelling that I've learned from being a producer director and sort of fusing them in together to make one sort of storytelling format which is the greatest fun and most enjoyment although it was immensely hard Mm. I absolutely love podcasts and I want to do more of them. 
that was a long explanation without breath. Hopefully that helps. So you're essentially making it up as you go along in the most brilliant way. You're not following a set path. You're just picking up little well, It's bits. more like, I like that. I want to do that. How am I going to do that? Okay, I'll do that. Okay, I don't understand how to do this. How do I figure that out? So it's just problem solving, one problem after another. It's continuously problem solving. So let's talk a little bit about the risk element in the mm. producing of that kind of risk assessment. Are there structures and programs and stuff in place to help you, or is it very much, very much so. get on the ground? So it depends who you work for. So because I work in broadcast, the risk management side of stuff is much more established. In papers, it's not really, although it's getting more established. Mm. Newspapers, in my experience, have a much more laissez-faire background approach to risk management, and it comes very much down to the individual, which is fine if you've got good individuals. Yeah. In other places, it can be problematic, I believe, but that's my opinion. So the BBC, for example, has probably got one of the, the sort of gold standard of risk management, where they have a, a team called the high risk team, and their role is to advise and in some instances provide safety advisors. So that'll be somebody who's basically a medic on the ground with you, because you have to think some of these places we work in, the hospital care is probably quite bad mm. or limited, and then you might not want to put a drain on that anyway. Yeah. So you go in. So when we were rolling around Syria in December 2017, for example, we were basically like a mini mobile hospital. It was ridiculous. We had our own oxygen. We had like extensive trauma kits. We had the ability basically to stabilize somebody within reason mm. in a really remote area because we knew if somebody got hurt really deep into Syria, which could be from a road accident, it doesn't necessarily have to be from like a gunshot or a bomb, it could be from something very common that we would experience here. Mm. The difference is there is there is, you know, you could be a day's drive into the country. So then you have to plan for, okay, so I break my leg badly in a car accident, how on earth, where are we getting Josh to? How are we getting him out of Syria? Or my one of my team, gets injured and then it's the mm. same sort of planning or a local team member that we've employed is injured what are we doing there yeah. so you have to do that but so what they have in the bbc is they have a high risk team who advise on this and then what i typically do is i will create it depends if i'm working with the in-house team or an external team but i'll create like a hundred page risk assessment that factors everything from what is our day-to-day -day plan? What are we doing on the ground? And obviously this goes out the window a lot of the time when you're on the ground. To um, what do we do if someone gets kidnapped? Or what do we do if somebody loses a limb? Or what do we do if somebody dies? Like, so it's, you, you go to that level of it. And then you also do just like the, what do you do if somebody trips over a pole? Like, so you do well, the whole- the thing, you're, you're making me laugh because I used to have to do risk assessments as a stage manager for theatre. Yeah. And that was always like if someone had an allergic reaction to something else. Well, we do all of that as well. It's all of that. Exactly, to a whole yeah. different level. And I used to complain. No, I mean, it's, I, I, I personally, I think I'm the only person on the planet who enjoys them. And I mean, we even do stuff like, you know, are we taking in our phones or are we using clean electronic devices? Because we're likely to, there's a risk of having some monitoring software put onto the devices or, 
you know, what has Josh got on his phone if he gets detained? Like, can people access his bank details? Can people access his email addresses and start trawling through? So one of the reasons I don't post a lot about my family on social media is purely because I have from time to time have members of ISIS like go online and look at me online and then try to intimidate me by saying I know what you're up to. I mean, all they have done is gone on my website. So it's not exactly the grandest of fucking intelligence, sorry, I swear so much, intelligence gathering operations. They've just literally looked at my website. So it's a bit like, mm. but consequently of that, if like you do get, if you do ever do find yourself in like a kidnap situation, you want to be really conscious that, you know, that's going to put an immense amount of strain on your family. You don't particularly want your family easily like a picture of them printed out and shown to you while you're in a room having a rough time and then also like one of the other things if you really want the detail I go to is like I have various lists of people with different expertise who can help my family and advise my family so obviously in a situation where I'm injured there's a certain list of people that can help obviously if I'm kidnapped and I've never been kidnapped and such which I never will be I have depending on what region I'm working in, I have different people that the family can call on for assistance to help advise them because in a situation like that, you'll have, say, the British government providing advice, which nothing against the British government, but their goal or, you know, their political agenda might be slightly different to recovering me. So that I might not be their number one priority. So you want people around your family in those environments that can advise them independently of everyone else, including my employer. So that's the level of detail these go to for what we call a critical risk level. Normal filming, you don't go anywhere near that. Like if you're shooting a film in Nottingham, you're not going near that. Your poor mother. Well, she's all right. She's, she's, I, think the, I think getting blown up was very tough on her, but otherwise she's okay. And, and, you know, people see how much planning I do. So mm. I think that reassures them quite a lot. I mean, with all the risks, is it, is it just the desire to get the story? Is that is that what motivates it all? No, like, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not like, like some of my colleagues who are immensely talented. I mean, they're really very impressive and mm. very smart. But all they do is is sort of conflict and high risk work. Now I don't do that. I make sure mm. I have a variety largely so I stay sane mm. because the ones that just do that, I think they've kind of got not perhaps without trying to be unkind, a little bit lost in it because mm. they are fascinating environments. They are very exciting environments and they're also quite simple environments in some ways mm-hmm. where like your basic day to day is you have a task, achieve it, and problem solve everything around it. So it's quite a, a simple way to live. You know, you're not thinking about mortgage or rent or, yeah. you know, I've got to go to Sainsbury's later. So it removes a lot of the mundanity of life mm-hmm. that people struggle with in their, their day-to-day. And you're just in this high-intensity in- environment, which is stimulating, and people sometimes wrongly, I think, fall in love with it. So I make sure that I have a balance. So, and also increasingly, if I'm going to do something that is high risk or critical risk, it has to really warrant it. Like there has to be a clear purpose for me to go and take that risk. Otherwise, like I'm at a point where I don't really need to do it. Mm. Like I will a hundred percent, I'll go all in, but if I don't need to, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So you're not reckless. You're not a 
No, I understand the difference between risk and recklessness. They're two very distinctly different things. Yeah. And they can often go like that. So you just have to be, you have to be conscious that you are stepping into an environment. You're choosing to do this. Nobody's making you. And you're stepping into an environment where there might be people who are having a really rough time and they're not choosing to be there. Mm. And you just got to be clear about what your motivations are, essentially. Do you feel more confident nowadays going into those environments when you did when you were kind of first starting out like you know the lay of the land you know how things work the procedure yeah to some degree but I also like make sure that I just treat it like I'm going to some degree I mean I have more knowledge and Mm. I kind of touch wood maybe not you never really know but I kind of know if something happens how I'm going to react Mm. or how I would expect myself to react yeah I don't often know what other team members are going to do but I know what I will probably do. And that just comes from years of working in these environments. I'm hyper hyper vigilant in those environments. So you are very conscious of your what you're doing and, and who's around you. And like, as ridiculous as it sounds, I, a long time ago, I had like counter surveillance training. So if I'm in a car, I'm also trying to work out if we're being followed. So you're doing all these things that your mind's doing, mm. like naturally, and when you first come home, actually, you often find yourself just doing it. Yeah. But for me personally, that only normally goes on for a couple of days and then I chill out. But there's this decompression period. But in terms of my comfortable in those environments, yeah, I think probably because I've gone there and done it enough that I, I try to not make that me that complacent. It mm. just means that I'm a little bit more prepared for it. I yeah. Guess. Do you, um, I guess, I guess with it being high risk and that kind of thing there's not much room for spontaneity when it comes to filming well yes and no I mean often actually what you're trying to do is you're trying to work out you're in this environment I need to get to x how am I going to do that or like all these things are going on how am I going to pull this into a story or like what is the thing that I'm trying to understand here so it can be extremely spontaneous or it can be extremely restrictive you're right it's like this this cross-section I mean one of the things whether you're filming in Iraq or Syria or, or or you know the UK you're always looking for how can I make I am anyway like how do I make the environment like a character in the story like how do I give people a sense of the space and the place and I think it can be a little bit easier to do that sometimes in foreign countries because they're naturally people are naturally more interested to see it so but it's a similar sort of principle depending on wherever you are, really. It's just the risk threshold comes right down. Hmm. And you say you go through these kind of decompression periods. Is that going yeah. from shooting horrible, horrible scenes in Syria to like watching fuzzy ducks or something? I buy plants. I went for a phase of buying a plant for every trip I did. So I ended up with like, I have no idea how many plants I am in. Mean, that was a hundred or not hundreds, but like probably like north of 50. I climb when we're allowed out of the house. So I do a lot of climbing. Mm. Although I'm really worried that with lockdown, the next time I go climbing, I'm just going to be like so weak and slipping off the wall all the time. Like, uh, yeah, my core strength will have plummeted. But yeah, so no, I just climb and, and, mm. and, and I also really take mental health quite seriously. Mm. So I make sure I have a therapist that I make sure I check in with. Mm-hmm. So even if I'm not particularly bothered by anything, I'll yeah. just go and have a chat because, you know, in any career, l- whether any career with looking after your mental health is integral to you having longevity in it. Mm-hmm. And also just like my industry, 
as a whole is a very difficult industry to work in yeah it's very up and down yeah and it's very draining and it's very can be very nasty and it can be very competitive and very manipulative and people will start rumors about each other or things like that and it's just you know it's such a competitive industry that it can be really really draining Mm. and I think you know so setting aside the fact that you know the conflict stuff just the very nature of the thing I do is is very hard and draining at points and also I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who is a mother sorry she's about to be a mother she'd like to have her first kid and she was talking about I don't know how to do this now given I'm about to be a mom because it's not like I can go away for two weeks and film and leave a new baby and I'm freelance so how does this work and I think our industry has a lot to look at for women and a lot to look at for like how we support moms to continue going so we you know we were talking about like can can Sasha and I do like a job share or like is there a way that we can still involve her in things or is there a way that she can think about it differently or use the time to develop stories that she really wants to do but it's a tough old industry it really is no 100% you definitely need those quiet periods and reflective periods just to balance it out (laughs) (laughs) I do DIY as well I do a lot of DIY are we That's talking like, Ikea or are we talking? No, like Ikea? proper, I just built a walk-in wardrobe, a cat poo palace or cat en suite, if you like it. I'll send you a picture of it. Please like, <laughs> it's the little box that's hidden behind a wall with like light sensors and things. I, there's something about DIY that I just, it's like perfect therapy for me. It's like, all right, I'm going to just build this thing for two days. Oh, definitely. I definitely had a period of that during lockdown. I was like, oh, I'm just going to paint the entire yeah. house. I don't care if anyone wants me to or not, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> I need to paint, let me paint. Although painting is like horrible, so I'm seriously impressed with the painting thing. Well, I, I wouldn't be too impressed. I did forget to paint the back of some of the doors. Who cares? Who and, needs the back of the doors painted? Yeah. Do you find you end up with more paint on you? Always. Well, yeah, good. I okay. mean, that's part of the fun, I feel. <laughs> I sometimes like go in the bathroom afterwards like how have I got so much paint on my face and hair like I don't even know how I achieved this. My my issue is um, the dogs always want to be a part of it um, but they don't quite understand the concept of wet paint so. Oh no so they run round. (laughs) Into the doors and they end up with little white nose. But yes I I see the appeal of DIY. (laughs) No it's great so great. So what was the biggest learning curve that you had to understand about everything you know I think no matter what type of story you're trying to tell Mm. in whatever medium you are always on a learning curve and you're always you're like the only way to get good at what you do is to keep making work and keep moving through a body of work because Mm. you know like often for a long time you'll do stuff that's okay but it's not what you want it to be. And you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And the podcast is probably the first thing I've done. I truly feel actually this is really good. Mm. I still think there are things I could have done better, 100%. I would do better. But it's the first one where I've actually been, I would say, content with the end of a project. Whereas historically, it's like, okay, this is really good. People really like it, but I don't particularly love it. Mm. and and so you you just have to keep moving through a body of work but I think 
as you move through a body of work, you get, you pick up skills and an understanding of how to do things, mm. a greater understanding that means the next time you're faced with a similar set of challenges and some new ones, and you just know that in your toolkit, you've got certain things of how I can approach that challenge. Yeah. How many projects would you say you're kind of working on in producing at one time? Like you've been working so on- So now, none. Years. I'm just finishing the world service thing. Mm. But for the first time in four years, I am not doing anything and I'm absolutely adoring it. I've literally just like powering down and I've obviously got the long, so I'm doing little things, but I wouldn't say I'm doing proper things. I'm doing written work and things mm. like that. But at its height, I was doing like the film, the podcast, a Louis through and development for a Stacey Dooley kind of all there was a point where they, all those things sort of like intersected yeah. where the focus was say the Louis but the the other things would require in the evenings or weekends like keeping things going so you would be doing all those things which was just exhausting because it meant that you were doing you know maybe two or three full-time jobs yeah I'm actually only 16 years old this is what that face is that process that's why you've got the beard yeah exactly it's just it's aged me so you know yeah so but but normally you know if I can I would just do one project because then you can do it really well so the great thing about the podcast is for me I can pick a point where the podcast got exponentially better mm. because it's the point where I stopped doing everything else yeah I stopped doing the film as well like because even with the films there's a UK version and a US version they're both very different Mm. They're very they're told in completely different structures so they're very different films and then why what's the difference between the uk and the us they have the completely different starting points and things like that but the us broadcast partner wanted to tell the story in a different way they wanted a different story and a different framing of the story and the bbc wanted a different framing altogether do you so, agree one more than the other uh yes mm. I'm not going to tell you which one, <laughs> but there, there is there is one I definitely think for me is a, a standout way of telling it. Mm. The other one is not bad and it's a good story as well. It's just not quite how I would tell it. And then there's bits in both that I think if you took parts and put them together, you'd have a really compelling mm. um, thing as well. They're just very different ways of doing it. Yeah. Um, but for the podcast, it's something that I've been like for the first part of it, largely left with my core team to just get on with it. And then we've got, done extensive random notes. But there's a point where I started working on it as my focus, mm. where it just got exponentially better because I could just dedicate all the time to it. So do you just have your ear to the ground most of the time, just waiting for the next thing to kind of catch. Yeah, or, or like, so I sometimes will have people come to me like with, do you want to come and do this project? Do you want to come and direct this? Or I'll spend time developing up ideas that I want to do. Mm. But the key for me is, I think now for like the next couple of weeks, I'm just powering down. Mm. I'm just, because it's been four years of work. And then in the last, from like the 4th of August, I had... Uh, four days off including Christmas so I was bothered by like by the end of like last week and even I tried to do a conference call the other day with my US producer and he was yawning and I was yawning I was just like 
this is pointless mate let's just let's still let's just both go to bed we'll talk in the morning and we we did Mm. so it's yeah I mean it's interesting yes it's kind of the life of a freelancer totally my hope is now is I can be a bit more focused in what I want to do but we'll see whether I can or can't you know Mm. it might be that I just take work to pay the bills yeah or it might be that I am able to take work that I really truly love and pay the bills which will be Mm. great the dream yeah and you know it is achievable it's just I don't know whether I will I don't anticipate working this year at the intensity of the last two years Mm. um, which will mean I make slightly less money but it'll also mean that I am a bit healthier you know physically and sleep not quite as gaunt (laughs) not quite as gaunt see friends and and sort of that which will be nice but it's a balance isn't it do you do you think the covid travel restrictions would affect like, massively they've mass, they've it's had a huge impact on our industry bad and good in that it's well it, you know people can't really travel anymore in the same way so i mean on average i was at one point doing like 35 to 50 flights a year mm. last year i did 12 and that was absurd like people were like oh my god josh is flying mm. and so it's and so we can't really go and do so people have had to come up with other ways of telling stories and things like that Mm. but I think it's it's problematic and worrying because if we can't go and gather and can't go and shine a light on things and really investigate things properly we have to find other ways to do it but it also kind of means like bad things happen in dark places do you know what I mean so if you can't shine a light on it by going there it kind of gives people a bit of breathing room to do some bad shit Mm. but also like fundamentally it's like an ethical thing as well of just if you are traveling do you really need to be traveling yeah I mean is it really worth the risk of giving someone coronavirus or you getting coronavirus Mm. and then there's the whole again like risk assessment thing of how do we mitigate that how do we do the the what have you yeah so it's just made everything much longer so for example a 10 days of filming in mm. america what would have equated in a normal time to 10 days uh took me six weeks so i was away for six weeks trying to do right. 10 days of filming and then when i came back i had to isolate for two weeks so i had two months without seeing anybody really for 10 days of filming Jeez, i mean just with the the time extension alone that just makes everything ridiculously more expensive as well well yeah it makes it brings things to the being to the a lot of things to the point of just being not viable yeah um i had a film that louis threw and i were going to do at the start of the last year we mm-hmm. just got commissioned and we were green let's go and do it and it was totally canned because we just can't it was overseas we just can't do it it's, mm-hmm. it's not worth the risk so would they postpone that kind of thing or is it like time i i think i think if i was to to message louis and his producer and say do we want to give this another crack we might be able to think about it for the end of the year but at the moment there's just so much uncertainty yeah good time to take a break yeah totally and sleep i need sleep (laughs) Of, of of all the places you've been i mean i've really just watch the the Stacey Dooley Isis and listen to mm. us but I know you've been to many many places has there one been one that's kind of made a huge impact on you I mean like I love Iraq and an awful lot I find Iraq to be the just most incredible place mm. steeped in history 
and like so different from region to region mm. like the different regions of Iraq you know Baghdad is amazing and has this phenomenal old book market by the river and just it's got so much going on it's such a cool place and then you know you've got the areas like Halara over towards the border of Iran which are like so culturally different and then you've got northern Iraq and what have you and it's it's just such a cool place and the people are just amazing mm. I know it's a sweeping generalization and there's lots of problems there and there's sort of three different sects of Iraq if you like but it's it's just broadly as a country I love it so much one last question yeah go for it yeah to finish off what and it's tricky so take time but what are the good bad and mad things about what you do this is the job for the person who wants to do everything which is what Rick Beeston my first guy who gave me a first shot in journalism would say mm. you know it kind of allows you to explore and be professionally nosy in all walks of life because you can literally if you try hard enough come up with a reason to explore anything yeah so that's good along with sort of meeting people and getting to know people in cultures or places that you never normally would mm. I love people so it's that's wonderful um, and I get to have adventures for a living which is amazing mad I mean it's just continuously mad like the places you end up the things that you do the people you speak to um, the things that often happen to you are are mad the bad is it's highly competitive can be a very nasty industry Uh, you can get hurt you can get killed it's exhausting I mean like it's you know an average day for me on a proper project will be 16 to 18 hours Mm -hmm. that's normal you know, I mentioned earlier a friend of mine who's about to have her first baby. And she was talking about the edit process of making a film, which is where you've got all your material and you're putting it together as a story with an editor. And, you know, those days are 16 hour days. And that means there's not much else that you can have in your life because you go to work, you work intensively, and then you sleep and you go to work and you take intensely. I mean, it's got so bad for me, it's sometimes I've slept on the floor and edit. So it's normal. That's. So the, the work ethos is unhealthy mm. and it's very hard to achieve a healthy balance to that without an inordinate amount of money being pumped into a project so people could can actually have the time they need to do things properly. Mm. Because one of the big things about this industry is increasingly you don't have the time you need to do things properly, but the expectation of quality it's is awesome. ever rising. So you have to do things better for less with less time and where that nets out is that the sacrifice ends up on you as an individual. I mean, if you even think about my job as a shooting producer director, and it's not always the case, but that is, I basically end up sometimes doing four people's jobs. So mm. I end up producing, directing, filming, and doing sound. Mm. Historically, if you go back 20 years, there would have been a sound person, a camera person, a producer, and a director. So my role has now come to be that I absorb four people's jobs and that's a lot of work. And then once you've done all your filming every day, you then have to go home and when people would be normally powering down, I'm transferring all the material we've got Mm -hmm. and I'm logging it so I know what's got to go. So by the time you've done that, you might be might have been awake for 20 hours. And then you've got to go to sleep and quickly get back up. And there are all these rules that you have in place about, you know, you're meant to have X number of hours off between shifts. In practical terms, it never happens. Very rarely does it happen. And so is, is that because 
you label yourself as freelance there's um yeah it's totally it's because the media industry as a whole is is a quite unregulated industry that Mm. is very competitive that is very unique and it has serious it's one of the last sort of industries i think that hasn't really had a lot of scrutiny put onto it in terms of like its practices for workers yeah um whereas you know we can all think about difficult industries to work in and it's not to say they take anything away because they are but we have some concept of it whereas typically people don't tend to think about being a freelance journalist or be a freelance filmmaker or what have you as we don't really have much concept of what that involves like when I tell people I'm a producer director they don't really know what that is yeah. and then when I tell them I'm a producer director that specialises in conflict like all my other friends who don't really do that they don't have an idea and they might be producer directors themselves they don't really have an idea of what the job involves well, this is I mean part of the reason why we started the good bad man is because when COVID started I was talking to a lot of um, creators but in particular theatre um, people and they were just beginning to have these conversations about issues with the industry with people who did exactly the same jobs but because they're a freelance mm-hmm. never actually discussed them and realised it was a wider issue. Totally. It's astonishing. And, and also when you're not freelance if you are staff at the BBC I think there are there are, there are huge benefits to being staff but there are also like some drawbacks if I'm honest um but I think you do you are protected to some degree so you might have to do the hours that we are talking about mm. but then on the flip side of it you get time out in lieu so you get you know I know one person who is a uh staff version of me mm. and she'll typically get a month off after a project because she'll total up all the extra hours she's done yeah. And it will quite say, oh, my God, we didn't need to give you a month's worth of time back. It doesn't happen in the freelance world. Mm-hmm. I think the flip side of that is when you work in-house for, say, the BBC or someone like that, you tend to only know the, their way of doing something. And that might not always be the most efficient way mm-hmm. or there are other ways that you can approach doing things. And I think one of the great advantages about being a jobbing freelancer is that you can go and work for lots of different people yeah. and your ability to learn and grow and acquire a broader skill set is much greater in the freelance world than I believe it is in the staff world because there's a structure and there's a way of doing things and it takes longer and it takes longer for you to progress. Whereas in freelance, you have to find it basically if you think about freelance v BBC staff, we have an impetus that we have to be commercially viable, right. whereas the BBC can afford to be a bit longer and slower. And it's not that that's bad. It's just mm-hmm. a different way of working. So you can progress quicker as a freelancer than you can as a staff member. And also find yourself doing lots of different, lot easier. Does that mean there's kind of a market for more documentary production companies and that kind of thing? I mean, it's, it's quite a difficult market at the moment. I think, I think that there will always be new production companies, but I mean, I don't really have a desire to establish a production company because you are then, you know, you have to constantly be developing new ideas and pitching and creating things. You can make more money. Yeah. I think there's, there's plenty out there already. I mean, there will always be more. There'll always yeah. be new ones that open up and there'll be ones that close as well just financing I guess at the end of the day yeah I mean 
there is a lot I love my job and I love the industry and I get to meet some incredibly smart and talented people and work with them and it's always such an honor but as an industry as a whole we have a lot to answer for for how we treat people and how we look after people and what we expect of people Mm -hmm. and how we treat each other Mm -hmm. like the competitive nature of the industry makes people really not great oh yeah no there's, there's a huge bullying issue I feel yeah totally and it's sort of it's a culture that perpetuates itself like and I often find for like it's incredibly gossipy industry as well and I often find for an industry that's so focused on fact and truth like the amount of time people spend like talking it's like do you actually know whether that person actually did what you said they did no you don't you just heard it like so you wouldn't do this in a story would you it wouldn't get off the ground so why do you do it in your personal life and in a professional life when it actually these sort of rumors going around about this person that you're talking about could actually be quite damaging for their career yeah. so there's a bit whole sex of like the industry i just don't engage with at all just but that's that, good that's that's good i mean it's good that you can just go nope can you can but i mean obviously sometimes people think you're like oh why doesn't he want to come to the pub or things like that it's like i just you know i will sometimes but i just don't, just don't really want to get involved with the gossip because you don't have to you have to draw those boundaries okay climbing yeah <laughs> but despite despite all, all the negatives the risks all of that worth it yeah totally i love it I mean, it's a brilliant job i absolutely adore it i'm very lucky i'm hugely lucky long I mean, may it continue i i'm pretty sure there's not many people out there in the world who get to do what you do no it's an incredibly rare job it's it's a job that's very hard to explain it sounds unbelievable mm. i mean one of the great things about the podcast series coming out is it's allowed some of my friends who i've not really been in contact with for a while yeah. to be like oh josh wasn't making it up he really was having conversations with these people he really was bumping into the fbi he really was doing these things you know because you sit down and people have no relatable aspect to it so they're like he's clearly talking out his ass yeah. and it's <laughs> like now there's a podcast people can be like oh okay you're not mad well you are mad but you were telling the truth (laughs) either or josh thank you so so much not at all thank you for letting me come and speak thank you for listening to this episode of the good bad mad podcast please subscribe to check out the next episode or leave a review if you liked it you can find us on instagram at goodbadmad or at goodbadmad.com for additional resources and information see you next time